You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we are asking the question, does John Walton get Genesis right? Does John Walton get Genesis right? We're in the middle of a series called The Biblical Origin of Humanity, going through a book by Dr. Terry Mortensen called Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin. And uh, I've had a really, really good time going through this book so far. And uh, this book looks at evidence from many different perspectives for a historical Adam, uh, a historical Eve, a historical fall. Uh, the Bible teaches that, um, or at least it sure seems to, uh, to teach that uh, Adam and Eve are the single progenitors of the human race. And of course, um, I believe that that is the case. The reason I said it seems that way is because much of what we have dealt with so far have been scriptural um, arguments. We've looked at the Old Testament. We've looked at uh, the New Testament, we've looked at the church, uh, we've looked at many different um, uh, surrounding cultural viewpoints, and this week we're going to kind of tackle something that is very, um, I believe, needed to be tackled in this day. Probably one of the main modern scholars who has cast doubt on the historicity of the Genesis account as written is John Walton. And I have to admit that I don't know much about him. I do know that he has written many um, books, especially, notably, the uh, Lost World trilogy. And so he has the Lost World of Genesis, the Lost World of Scripture, uh, the Lost World of Adam and Eve, and these are all books that he has written. And the premise of these books is essentially, in a nutshell, that the ancient Near East literature has something to say regarding a cultural context that could completely and fundamentally alter how we understand the first chapters of the Bible. And uh, not only that, but the Old Testament in general. And so John Walton has been a very, very fundamental player in this space and has essentially made room for a varying degree of interpretations of Genesis. And what we're looking at today is we're asking the question of, did John Walton get Genesis right? And in this particular chapter of the book, of course, uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen is the general editor of this book, but the contributions are from a vast uh, group of authors. And this particular contribution came from Steve Ham. I believe he is the brother of Ken Ham there at the Answers in Genesis organization. And he has uh, an MDiv from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He heads up the International Ministry Division of Answers in Genesis. Uh, he is a regular speaker, author, contributed to the growth of, uh, of creation apologetics in general in numerous different countries. And I have to say, I was very, very impressed personally reading through this chapter. He has certainly done his work on uh, Mr. Walton, and also he has certainly done his work uh, in the Bible and studying. And you can tell that he is well aware of the arguments he is well aware of the view that John Walton and others hold, and he does a very thorough job in refuting that and also in taking us through it and, and kind of building arguments that make sense and are logical and completely, in my humble opinion, debunk the ideas that Walton has brought to the text of Genesis. And so I think this is going to be a great study for us today. I'm looking forward to getting into it. And here we go. So the author begins by saying this, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, the latest of John Walton's Lost World trilogy with uh, contributions from N.T. Wright, discusses the nature of biblical anthropology in light of his perception of the true context of ancient Israel. 
Walton has attempted to construct this context through his understanding of the ancient Near East as the setting in which Israel received the scriptures. In doing so, he discusses the nature of the first three chapters of Genesis and proposes that the text is giving an account not of material origins, i.e. of how and when the creation came into existence, but of the inauguration of creation as God's cosmic temple in which we find the role of humanity. Within this framework, Walton presents his case for uncovering the history of human origins. So already we kind of see in this first summary statement here that Walton is not going to approach the text from what what we might consider a natural or a standard reading of, of Genesis. And that is what Mr. Ham is trying to get across to us here from, from the very beginning. He wants us to understand that Walton provides a completely different framework. It, it's not... Uh, meant to describe material origins at all. According to Walton, Genesis is just not about that. Genesis has to do, much like uh, other ancient Near Eastern literature, with bringing order to disorder, with bringing function to non-function, with giving humanity a role within God's, quote, cosmic uh, temple, so there are these motifs that are completely different in Walton's view of Genesis, and that is what we are aiming to question here. Now, when when the discerning reader just reads through the text of Genesis, um, any normal person approaching the text for the first time, and certainly approaching the text that way for many, many years, um, would certainly never think of things in terms of how Walton has portrayed it. So in my opinion, what we have going on here is a scholar who has made room for additional interpretations of Genesis, but it seems like the only people who are going to have access to those interpretations are those who question what you can glean from the text at face value, number one, and two, those who are aiming to debunk those who question what you can determine at face value. So the standard person approaching the text of Genesis is just not going to have any relevant context here. They're going to take the Bible as straightforwardly read. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is, is how did God, how did God mean for Genesis to be taken by its readers? Now that is a question to think about as we go through this chapter. Now, concerning the uh, importance of Old Testament backgrounds, uh, the author writes this, Archaeology and studies in A.N.E. or Ancient Near Eastern languages and culture are fields that pose much promise to strengthen the church through an enhanced understanding of biblical backgrounds and use in biblical apologetics. However, and this here is important, an increased level of discernment is required from people in the pews who read the works of some scholars who vocally proclaim commitment to biblical authority and inerrancy while posting vastly different views of key biblical texts. And Mr. Ham's point here is one that should not be missed. It's hard to claim to be a biblical inerrantist and take the text in such a different way from other people who claim to be biblical inerrantists. All right? So that means that it's somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong because these views are just fundamentally different. There is nothing about them that is similar. And yet we both hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. So... One of us um, essentially has a lesser or even a looser uh, view of Scripture than we are letting on, or either our understanding of the text is not complete, but something is wrong there. And we're going to kind of uncover and see if we can determine who that is as we move through this chapter. And I believe, I believe that we're going to find out that John Walton and that crowd is playing fast and loose with the text in, in ways that um, God never intended for anyone to do. 
So that's kind of how we're going to look at this thing. It is Walton's contention uh, that it is only after recent discoveries and study of A&E literature that scholars have been able to reconstruct a true understanding of the context of the Old Testament scriptures. This context, he proposes, vastly changes the way that the church has traditionally understood Genesis as an account of material origins. So this is important. As I've mentioned multiple times, this means that when we are looking at Genesis through John Walton's view, we're going to have to think of things in terms of a difference of doctrinal understanding from what the church has traditionally held. Now, the main majority position of the church has been that of a recent creation. By the way, that was Adam's position. That was Jesus's position by the admission of theistic evolutionists. All right? That was their position. That was the position of the early church. That was the position of many church fathers, the reformers. Yes, there were aberrant views. There were views that were differing from that. There were, um, during the time and even before the time of Jesus, there were those who believed that the earth was much older than um, the majority consensus did. So this is certainly something that has been floating out um, around there, okay? This is not uh, a recent development. I mentioned last week, this did not begin with radiometric dating. Um, Charles Lyell and, and, and Charlie Darwin, let me tell you, they did not come up with the idea of long ages. They were big contributors to the idea of millions of years uh, but as far as long ages and a, and a vast amount of time, they were not the first ones to come up with that. Um, the ancient philosophers have been dealing with these questions for a very, very long time. So as we return to the importance of this, let's let's look at the views or propositions of Walton uh, and indeed Wright, because N.T. Wright, the Ang- Anglican bishop, um, is also a contributor into this book and I think into various parts in this series. And so we're going to kind of need to see what he has to say about things as well. And his views are scattered throughout. All right, so let's take a look then at uh, at these views. Proposition number one, Genesis is an ancient document. I think we can all agree with that. And number two, in the ancient world and the Old Testament, Creating focuses on established order by assigning roles and functions. All right, so this proposition is saying that creation does not have anything to do in the Old Testament and ancient world context, okay? That creating does not have anything to do with physical material creation. Rather, it has to do with the establishment of order by roles and functions. That's important. Proposition number three similarly says that Genesis 1 is an account of functional origins, not material origins. Four, in Genesis 1, God orders the cosmos as sacred space. Now here's what he means. The concept of functionality comes to light here in terms of God's making himself a home, quote, all right? As the A&E literature, uh, creation texts are often associated with the creation of sacred space as in a temple, so in Genesis 1 is the cosmos being ordered as God's sacred space. So that's what he means by that. 5. When God establishes functional order, it is quote-unquote good. Proposition number six, Adam is used in Genesis 1 through 5 in a variety of ways. And he says on this that Walton does not identify Adam as a representative head, which one is serving as an elect delegate on behalf of the rest. Instead, he describes Adam as an archetype. All are embodied in the one and counted as having participated in the acts of that one where a representative head determines that which proceeds for all. An archetype is an original that is simply typical of all. So you see the big difference there. Um, this is this proposition is just meant to show that Genesis shows Adam in a variety of different ways. Arguably it does, but I don't necessarily think in the ways that Walton is arguing for here. Walton is basically saying that we are not the way we are because of Adam. 
We don't have a sin nature because of Adam. Rather, we have a sin nature, and Adam is simply archetypal or typical of our condition. So that would be Walton's view of Adam's nature. Seven, the second creation account, quote, uh, Genesis 2, 4 through 24, can be viewed as a sequel rather than as a recapitulation of day six in the first account, Genesis 1, 1 through 23. Proposition 8, forming from dust and building from rib are archetypal claims and not claims of material origins. 9. Forming of humans in ancient Near Eastern accounts is archetypal, so it would not be unusual for Israelites to think in those terms. And along with this, uh, this has a lot to do, in this case, with man being made in the image of God. We're talking about the the forming of humans, and it means three things. One, that they're functioning in place of the gods, so doing menial labor, so the gods need not do it. Two, functioning in service to the gods, performance of religious uh, ritual, providing for the temple. Three, functioning on behalf of the gods, rule either over the non-human creation or over other people. Now the difficulty, and I'm hoping you're seeing this here, is it sure looks like we're getting ready to embark on an interpretation of Genesis that is influenced by pagan mythologies. And if that's what you're thinking, you are absolutely right. That's the direction we're heading here, and it's it's certainly not a comfortable direction uh, for, for me to be heading in, and so I don't think it is for you either, but that's what we're looking at. Number 10, the New Testament is more interested in Adam and Eve as archetypes than as biological progenitors. 11, though some of the biblical interest in Adam and Eve is archetypal, they are real people who existed in a real past. And the author comments rightly here, uh, to understand how this can be, in light of Walton's previous points, one has to see the example of Melchizedek and Abram. He argues that just as Abram gave a real tithe to a real person and serves as an example for all of Israel in tithing, so too Adam and Eve must be real persons who really sinned in history and serve in a similar archetypal fashion. However, at the same time, it must be observed that for them to play these historical roles does not necessarily require them to be the first human beings, the only human beings, or the universal ancestors of all human beings, biologically or genetically. So that would be Walton's view uh, on that. All right, 12. Adam is assigned as priest in the secret, uh, excuse me, in the sacred space with Eve to help. 13. The garden is an ancient Near Eastern motif for sacred space, and the trees are related to God as the source of life and wisdom. If this sounds completely foreign to you so far, uh, don't worry, we're (laughs) we're not done yet. 14. The serpent would have viewed as a chaos creature, excuse me, would have been viewed as a chaos creature from the non ordered realm, promoting disorder. 15. Adam and Eve chose to make themselves the center of order and the source of wisdom, thereby admitting disorder into the commas. Now, don't miss Proposition 15. What we call the fall of humankind, the fall of mankind, when sin and death entered into the world, notice what Walton describes this as. He describes this as Adam and Eve choosing to make themselves the center of order and source of wisdom, thereby admitting disorder into the cosmos. Adam and Eve did not sin per se. They simply admitted disorder. 16. We live in a world with non-order, order, and disorder. 17. All people are subject to sin and death because of the disorder in the world, not because of genetics. 18. Jesus is the keystone of God's plan to resolve disorder and perfect order. Notice that salvation here is not atoning for sin. Salvation is merely resolving disorder 
and perfect order. 19. Paul's use of Adam is more interested in the effect of sin on the cosmos than in the effect of sin on humanity and has nothing to say about human origins. N.T. Wright uh, contributed that chapter. Proposition 20. It is not essential that all people descended from Adam and Eve. Uh, I take pretty big issue with that, but nonetheless, that's their argument. And finally, Proposition 21. Humans could be viewed as distinct creatures and a special creation of God, even if there was material continuity. And the author comments that uh, finally Walton proclaims that humans are distinct, but not on the basis that they are created this way in the image of God. Rather, real human beings lived as material creatures, or at one point, uh, excuse me, real human beings who lived as material creatures were at one point given God's image through how they functioned. That distinct function was to bring order to a non-ordered creation in the terrestrial setting. So if you're confused right now, don't worry. I was quite confused too when reading this. This is a very, very different view of reading through Genesis. Now, Walton argues that this is the view that the ancient Jews would have understood Genesis. Now, uh, I think that is contradicted by Jewish writers, such as Josephus and, and, and others like that, but I think even he would argue that, um, or Walton would argue, that those writers just did not have an idea of how they saw the world back then. Somehow, just now, do we have such knowledge. And... Now we can make sense of the early chapters of Genesis, whereas for the past 1,800 years or so, we could not. So I think it should be evident by this point that we are going to certainly need to give this a thorough treatment. I mean, we need to kind of look at some of these claims. There are... There are many, many claims made in those propositions that we just mentioned that would appear to give a traditional understanding a serious, serious problem. Um, I also think, as I kind of alluded to earlier, that it's going to give a significant problem for anyone who uh, just approaches the text of Genesis for the first time and is not aware of these other interpretations and options. I think that it is going to take a student who is trying to uh, work evolution into the Bible, who is going to try to reconcile the biblical story with the evolutionary timeline, I think it's going to require somebody like that to look into this for the first time, uh, or for somebody to be introduced to it through other apologetics organizations or things like that. So my difficulty there is, again, with the fact that is God wanting us to look at the scriptures in the same way as uh, surrounding ancient Near East cultures did. Now, in some previous podcast episodes, I alluded to the fact, and he's going to get to this here, that uh, it, it seems that there's such a stark difference um, just in the fact that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Uh, the, that is a difference enough to warrant looking at the Bible differently than the other pagan mythical uh, cultures. To equate them, I think, would be very erroneous. And we're going to see that as we go along. So let's look at some arguments then from Mr. Steve Ham. We'll first look at uh, A&E hermeneutical priority undermining biblical authority and inspiration. Walton has stated his own views of Scripture right here. At the fountainhead of biblical authority is either an authority figure who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, generated the information, e.g. Moses, Jeremiah, or, more abstractly, the tradition itself passed on by various tradents whose origins are untraceable, e.g. narratives, whether in Genesis or Judges. So, a few kind of understandings of, of this view of Scripture, what, what it means. Essentially, all right, essentially, 
the uh, theological authority, so the the weight that is placed uh, on the text, the the who who gets to speak to the theology, it's placed on its authorship and tradition, rather than the text being God breathed. All right, so don't miss that. It's authorship and tradition. It's not the traditional view of inspiration. So then one has to work backwards and start to question, well, okay, so if John Walton is supposedly a biblical inerrantist, um, what does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, well, there is theological authority being placed on the authorship and tradition rather than on God-breathed text. So, uh, you know, to me... I'm pretty sure that that causes a uh, a big issue. I'm not sure that he's looking at the text um, in the authoritative way that a biblical inerrantist would uh, would do. So the author notes that Paul makes it clear that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Second Timothy three sixteen, uh, the Bible uh, attributes the weight of authority and inspiration to the words themselves of Scripture. Um, you can see that in Matthew five seventeen through eighteen, not to the process or to the culture in which the process took place. So that's very important. The process itself, there was nothing divine or special about. Now, of course, we realize the doctrine of preservation. We believe the Bible has been preserved. Um, but that's not what's in view here. The idea is that the scripture um, is not to be given theological authority based on the fact that it's God's word so much as the fact of its authorship and its tradition. Um, but on that basis, I question why. You know, I mean, why? Who cares about authorship and tradition? Can we not make that argument for any old religious uh, practice? I think we can. I think what makes the Bible special, and I know what makes the Bible special, is that it's the Word of God. And that criterion alone means it ought to be set apart. Now, furthermore here, it's very evident in Scripture that many of its writers were aware of divine authorship. All right, how about this? The prophets, thus saith the Lord, for example, all the time. We find that scattered throughout the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord. They knew that the Lord was speaking to them, and they were relaying what the Lord had spoken. All right, Peter attributes inspiration to the letters of Paul. For example, you can see that in 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 16. All right. So the author comments here that this also means that an understanding of AE materials and the transmission traditions within AE cultures must only have a ministerial place, possibly enhancing but never determining meaning in our understanding of Scripture. I think we could all agree that context is important. Um, a text without its context becomes a pretext, right? We've all heard that. Context has much more to do with reading, you know, you've heard the old thing, five uh, verses back and five verses forward and things like that. Context has much more to do with that. Context even has much more to do with just the linguistics, even if you extrapolate out into the whole Bible. There's cultural context. There's historical context. There's things that matter. All right? Now, that would be... Um, one facet, okay, of Walton's premise. Of course, we understand that there is context to be considered here, but um, rather than just simply placing the scripture in a proper context, um, this view, Walton's view, is actually reinterpreting what we know about the Bible in light of only that context, or at least primarily that context, and then working in uh, theological considerations afterward. And he wouldn't say this, I don't believe. I don't think this is Walton's view, but it's my view, okay, of Walton's view, that the reason this is done is so that we don't have any pressure to... Um, conflict with the scientific consensus or the scientific majority today. And we are going to look a little bit more at that statement and see where Walton stands on that uh, before the podcast here is over. All right. So um, th it's evident that uh, authors were aware of divine authorship. And so this presents a problem for the view that the authorship and tradition itself uh, should have the theological authority. Merrill has stated this, a history of Israel 
must depend for its documentary sources almost entirely upon the Old Testament, a collection of writings confessed by both Judaism and Christianity to be Holy Scripture, the Word of God. The degree to which historians are willing to submit to this claim will inevitably affect the way they think about their task. So it's obvious that writers such as Walton and Beale and others do not submit to this claim, at least not in the way that most practicing you know, Jews, for instance, or Christians would submit to the claim. I mean, this, you know, Merrill here is arguing essentially that in order for the Jews to be able to construct a meaningful history at all, they're going to have to depend on these documents, which have traditionally been understood to be the Word of God and Holy Scripture. And so if if we can't depend on those as written history, then the, the very Jewish nation has a pretty big problem. All right, so that is what happens, okay, when we place the hermeneutical priority uh, on the ancient Near Eastern literatures, and it undermines the biblical authority and inspiration. Now, what about this? We're looking at that same hermeneutical priority and undermining the perspicuity of Scripture, and that is the main heading under which most of the rest of this chapter is carried out. And so that's what we're going to be looking at for about the next half hour or so. The perspicuity of Scripture. Now, by the way, that word perspicuity, it just simply is another way of saying clarity. All right? Is the Scripture clear about what it uh, means? It is, is, or is there kind of, you know, motifs in there and linguistic things in there that are uh, more difficult for us to see and therefore causing us a problem uh, in our interpretation. Um, did God mean to be clear, all right, when he gave us the Bible? Um, you know, even last week, uh, we saw a case where uh, we were dealing with kind of the age of the earth, and we saw a case where it was clear that God could have used different language to convey long ages in Genesis if that's what he meant to do. But he didn't. All right, so the clarity or the perspicuity there um, definitely seems to lean very heavily on the side of a recent creation. And again, I'll say it again, um, I can't tell you how many old earth creationists and theistic evolutionists I've had admit that to me. Now, not all of them. I'm friends with some who, who would just not concede that claim. All right, so I'm not painting with a broad brush here. I understand there are two sides of the coin. Um, but I have had many admit to me that that is clearly the teaching of scripture, but we know it must be wrong. So something else must be in the mix. And of course, that's when they will point to writings such as these of Walton's to show that there are alternative views. However, just because there are there are alternative views does not mean that alternative views are correct. There are alternative views of what happened when the Twin Towers were attacked on September 11, 2001. You could go online and you could look up conspiracy theories for days. You could look up all kinds of things. Just because somebody else believes another thing about the text does not mean that it should be taken as a true statement. And certainly does not mean that it is even a legitimate view, uh, no matter how many people hold it. Um, so that's important. Con consider that here. I mean, yeah, there are alternative views, but you know, how likely are they to be wrong? And if they're wrong, that poses a big problem. So we can't just point to an alternative view that uh, somebody who's written some books has and say that that is rational enough justification for accepting that view. That's not how it works. And especially not how it works when we're dealing with the Word of God. So let's look at this. Uh, concerning Walton's work, Ham suggests this. In a full and careful reading of his book, one finds translation alterations, word definitions, and reshaping of major doctrines that reveal his position to be completely foreign to 1,800 years of biblical coherency in the church. It is one thing to state a commitment to perspicuity, but it is another entirely to practice it. Now, don't miss that, because that's what we looked at when we talked about the inerrant understanding as well. So we're talking about somebody who believes that Scripture is inherent, or excuse me, inerrant and clear. However, does not seem to write that way about the text himself. 
um, you know, we've all heard the saying, actions speak louder than words, all right? This applies. Um, it's unfortunate, but I don't see this man's actions lining up with his words. He says scripture is clear, but in order to um, give us his version of clear scripture, we have to translate words in ways that are not how the majority especially would understand them. Um we have to give them different definitions. We have to reshape major doctrines that have been accepted for uh, decades and decades and, and centuries, rather, um, in order for that purpose to come through. So I don't think it's there. Uh, he quotes Luther um, in his book, Walton does, uh, about not finding, quote, um, anyone in the church with adequate skill to explain everything in the Genesis account, unquote. All right, so... Luther said this. However, he also fails to quote Luther uh, elsewhere when he says this. When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days. And do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. So, I find it interesting that creationists are often accused of quote mining. Uh, this is a serious quote mine right here. I mean, this this is just simply quoting somebody um, in, in a context that is completely foreign to his view. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, this is akin to somebody saying, the Bible is not true if it is not the word of God, and then quoting them in their book as only saying the Bible is not true. Um, th this is this is certainly a improper um, and unfortunate and careless handling of, of Luther's view. And so one you know wonders that what other kind of improper care and handling has been taken, what other liberties have been taken throughout this book to promote a view that is his own and only uh, his own. Um, so that's a question for you. All right. So there are a few lines of um, evidence here that he goes through a few a few headings and sections that he looks at to kind of make his uh, case. All right. So let's look at the similarities versus the differences. Similarities versus the differences. Now, this is always a thing. Uh, when we look at the creation evolution debate, when we're talking about creation um, in any meaningful context at all, we're always taught to look at or always um, instructed to look at the similarities. Evolutionists, for example, always point to the similarities between genomes and they look at their homology that they've laid out and they find fossils and they lay their fossils out uh, in the order that they think that life progressed and they say, look at all these similarities. They look at the genes, uh, they look at the genetic code and they say, okay, um, so we are closer in uh, genetic order to a chimpanzee than to a banana so it must be that the banana was in the distant past, and as it evolved, it became a chimpanzee, and as it evolved, it became a human, and on from there. All right. Now, so we're told to look at the similarities. But what about if we consider the differences? What about if we consider the differences? Now, let's just use my same example. In the chimpanzee case, we know that if we examine the, the differences, and by the way, Tompkins, who is a writer in this book, uh, in a later chapter that we're going to get to, Jeffrey Tompkins has argued and done the research on it uh, that we are only actually about 85 to 88% similar to chimpanzees, which is, I believe, a difference in over 4 billion uh, gene um uh, genetic markers, rather. So uh, there's a huge, huge difference, all right? The similarities are there, sure, but so are the differences. A car, in many ways, is very similar to an SUV, but it's the differences that are key that make would make somebody choose an SUV over a car, even though they were made by the same designer, say, GMC, all right? So we can't just look at the similarities. We must also look at the differences, Um that is the point I'm attempting to make. So um, let's look at what Curran has to say about this. He has identified the genre of any text as mainly mythic narrative in contrast to the biblical historical narrative. So while the Bible is consistently purposed to glorify the one creator God, 
A&E texts are polytheistic. Magic is the ultimate power in the universe in A&E texts and is a power above the gods. In the biblical account, there is nothing with power over the all-powerful and sovereign God. Oswald, by the way, comes to these same conclusions in his helpful analysis. So, what a consideration. What a difference. Every other a text, at least most, is polytheistic. That is so contrast to our biblical understanding, right? We don't believe in many gods. We believe in one God, one being, three persons. All right? So we need to understand the huge differences between the A&E text and what the Bible actually teaches. That is going to help us to determine what kind of context and what kind of light we should view the Bible in. Now, Curran writes, The uniqueness of the biblical account is a good argument for its independence from, rather than its dependence on, the pagan mythic texts. They are uh, perhaps two separate traditions that stem from a historical flood. If biblical stories are true, one would be surprised not to find some references to these truths in extra-biblical literatures. Uh, So again, uh, looking at the shared history of humanity, which by the way we're going to talk about uh, in an upcoming lesson. Um, But looking at things like legends of the actual flood, all right, Um, legends of the Tower of Babel event, um, our shared cultural history, all right. Um, So it's true now that um, when these traditions that have stemmed from uh, what we would say the biblical flood, uh, if this is true, then we would expect there to be similar accountings of this elsewhere in Scripture. But the biblical account is so unique, and that's what I was getting at earlier. It's the Word of God. The differences are so important that it really lends credence alone um, for the independence from rather than its dependence on uh, the pagan mythic texts, as Curran has stated here. So Um, These are important considerations as we uh, attempt to separate the Bible from the A&E texts. All right, that was the similarities versus the differences. Now, what about the difference between functional and material? And I'm just going to kind of sum this up here. Uh, The text itself depicts both material, origin, and function. As an example, and only one is required to make the functionality position untenable, on day four of creation week, Genesis describes not only the function of the lights in the sky to rule the day and night, and give light on the earth, and to be assigned for seasons, days, and years, but God also explicitly says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. That's found in Genesis 1, 14-19. The function, get this, the function is not possible without its material origin. By the word of his mouth, God brings forth the material origin of the celestial lights and then says what they are for. So that's a, a good enough example right there. We don't even need to look much further than that. The Genesis account is functional and material. It's, it's very much tied, much in the same way that a historical understanding of sin is required or is tied, rather, to a historical event in which sin came into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, according to Romans 5.12. Much in that same way, we also find that in order for something to be functioning, it must also be there. It must also be historical. And Genesis has not only given us the functional details, but also the material forming. If this was just a functional account, we wouldn't need uh, the the statement, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens. They're already uh, there in the case of a functional um, framework. But That's not what we find in the text. And, of course, that poses a serious problem for this view. All right, what about um, Adam as an archetypal versus a representative head? All right, Walton has defined um, archetype as, quote, all are embodied in the one 
and participating in the actions of the one, unquote. So archetype is a typological term, uh, meaning that Adam is an example of the original type of human. This is significantly different than saying that Adam is actually the original man and represents all mankind. So you see the difference then between archetypal and representative. If Adam is representative, that means he is the original, and he is a representative a figurehead of all mankind, and he is where um, uh, we came from. So he not only represents, but he is the progenitor. Um, but in the um, archetypal view, uh, it's basically saying that this is just typological. Adam is a typological um uh, man, all right? Adam is a way of understanding humanity and the human condition. So, in other words, the author puts it like this. Men are not born corrupt because God imputed Adam's sin to them. Rather, God imputed Adam's sin to them because they are corrupt. In some, their condition is not based on their legal status, but their legal status on their condition, according to Raymond. So we have to look at this and say, well, is this the view that the Bible teaches? All right, now there's also another problem with this, and it's the problem with the view of sin. Now, it's very important to have an understanding of sin. And for what I believe is a faithful biblical understanding, maybe you're listening to this podcast for the first time, and if you have and you've stuck around this far, we, we've talked about some pretty abstract stuff, so I commend you for that. But I'm going to put it in the show notes, and I'd like you to go visit my website, steveschramm.com, and I would like you to visit there and view an article that I've written on original sin so you can get an understanding of uh, why um, we believe in such a doctrine, why we believe that there was a historical Adam and Eve who were responsible for sinning against God and therefore tossing the whole rest of the humanity, the whole rest of um, human life into a state of sinfulness. So I've written on that, and I think that will help give a little bit more context if you're interested in some further reading, especially if you're not familiar with this. But so let's look at this. So Walton believes people obtain their sinful condition by living in a disordered world. All right, now for that, um, you would need to get the book and see the summary on Proposition 17. And by the way, this would just be a good time to uh, encourage you to get the book anyway. Um, because it's a great book. It's an absolutely great book. All right. Um, and you will get so much more information out of reading the book uh, than you will even through this podcast series. All right. So continuing on, this is because his definition of sin revolves around man during his, or excuse me, claiming his own wisdom to bring order out of non-order, but actually producing disorder. Humanity lives in and contributes to a world of disorder. This view of sin causes further problems in consideration of justification. If someone is considered a sinner because he has contributed to a disorderly world, just as man's archetype once did, then a believer is considered righteous because he has brought order in the same way as his second final archetype, which would be Jesus, did. They, and this is speaking of both Bright and Walton, downplay the idea of justification, regeneration, and imputed righteousness. While they do not openly deny this, it would seem that these traditionally and biblically central aspects of salvation are all but placed aside by the overpowering concentration upon, quote, getting the creational project back on track, unquote. What a different understanding of sin and salvation and justification this clearly, clearly, and I hope you see what's happening here, this view has much more to do than with just the first few chapters of Genesis. Do you see? Do you see? If nothing else, if nothing else, get this. The way that this interpretation of Genesis has affected traditional understanding of core doctrines. And you can see clearly that it does. I don't think I have to argue that point any further. I think you can clearly see that this way of viewing Genesis has a direct reflection on the way you review core doctrines taught in the New Testament. This fact alone should tell you how important it is to take Genesis at face value, or you are going to wind up with an idea completely different and completely foreign to biblical teaching.
They also believe Adam's formation from dust was only archetypal of human morality, or excuse me, mortality, rather than a historical event. According to the author, this means, quote, likewise, Eve is the only archetype, original type of human living. All right, so then Walton uh, believes that prior to any commands being given in Genesis 2, humanity was not accountable for sin, but was no less archetype, original type of human living. Walton believes that prior to any commands being given in Genesis 2, humanity was not held accountable for sin, but was no less created in the image of God. This means, and don't miss this, this is so important, this affects everything. This means that prior to the fall, Walton allows for image bearers of God to live, die, and sin without accountability. Now, where is that taught in the Bible? It's not. Resolving versus reconciling. On Walton's view, the word resolve is always used instead of reconcile. What a key difference. The author says this, The discerning reader will note that reconciliation or restoration, as in Acts 3.21, has to do with actions to rectify something to a previous condition. There's no sense of this in the word resolve. One can resolve a situation that has always required it. So even if Walton does not claim intentionality in his word choice of resolve, a consistent application of the meaning of reconciliation exposes the impossible nature of his claims about the physical condition of a pre-fall world. Regardless, the text only allows for a word that, in its meaning, looks forward to a future restoration of a past condition. If Walton were to accept the words reconciliation or restoration and apply them to his own view, he would also have to accept that the new heavens and earth are going to be non-ordered. In his view, non-ordered also includes death, suffering, disease, bloodshed, sin without consequence, and natural disasters. It would seem that Walton desires a material perfect eternity. <laughs> Man, what a difference. What a difference. And I, I hope you're seeing this. A, a lot of this is speaking for itself. I hardly have to provide much commentary. Hopefully you see the huge problem with this. I mean, if we're talking resolving instead of reconciliation, then we do not have the same meaning at all. This means that the new heavens and new earth can have such, quote, uh, non-order or disorder, and that's going to include violent things, death, suffering, bloodshed, disease, sin, uh, with no consequence, natural disasters. What kind of an eternity is that. It's not the one that the Bible teaches. Evolutionary views. Walton claims that he does not espouse evolutionism, by the way. And you can, you can find that in his work. He most certainly claims that he does not necessarily espouse evolutionism. Um, however, here are seven points to um, the seeming contrary. He's on the board of Biologos, one. Two, he contends that his views uh, share no contradiction with the scientific consensus on human origins. Three, he suggests that the archetypal interpretation of Adam allows for one to believe that the first two humans were not created de novo um, or at the beginning, um, in spite of Jesus' clear teaching that they were. All right. Four, he claims Genesis 1 does not describe material origins. Five, his discussion of hominids implies acceptance of evolutionary human development. Six, he affirms common descent and suggests that the theory of evolution is not inherently atheistic or deistic. And seven, Walton seems to imply and discuss a lot about human evolution for one who confidently asserts that the Genesis text is not talking about science or material origins. Um, so there are some big problems with that. You know, he can say, again, it's one of those cases where Walton seems to be saying one thing and actually practicing another. All right, um, we are almost finished here. I want to look at one more thought and then a conclusion. So um, there is an underlying motif in this whole thing about creation and the temple, um, the tabernacle, and the Garden of Eden. Um, and this is kind of the crux of this functionality view. So I want to read a couple things to you uh, directly from the book. So um, a comparison here is often drawn between the temple and the Garden of Eden, indicating that the garden was simply a separated place from the rest of a non-ordered world. And I've seen this view permeate um, 
into old earth understandings as well in a little different way. Um, essentially that maybe the garden of Eden was perfect and the rest of the world, um, was imperfect and that's where the fossil record comes from and everything. And so I've seen this view, uh, permeate into some different areas. All right. Um, so the author comments in response, it is important to note that these consequences came upon the whole creation as a result of sin. And when I say these consequences, of course, we mean the, the judgment for sin. Uh, so notice this, Moses does not indicate forbidden access to the garden from a non-ordered world. Nothing in the text implies that only the special garden was very good. Because Adam listened to Eve, instead of guarding her against the attack of Satan, God actually cursed the very ground outside the garden to which Adam and Eve were expelled and in which they would toil. It was not the Garden of Eden that was cursed, for God banished Adam and Eve from the garden and then stationed angels to guard the entrance to it. The sphere of the consequence of sin is clearly shown not only as a spiritual reality for mankind, but a physical reality for all of creation. So the temple motif here um, certainly does not seem to work in the fact that there was no uh, indication in the text of a separation between the Garden of Eden and the rest of the world. This kind of view would be completely foreign to a traditional understanding of Scripture, and um, it's required in many cases to make sense of some kind of evolutionary view of origins. Um, but it's not biblical. Now, similarly related to that is the tabernacle uh, and the Garden of Eden. Um, now, so remember, this means Eden was functionally different than the rest of the world, not materially. All right, so Walton's view of the Genesis 1 is not describing a material creation, but merely God giving functionality to an already existing creation relies not on the biblical text, but on his interpretation of A&E texts and his acceptance of evolutionary presuppositions, uh, though he denies this influence, and interpretations regarding the origin and history of creation. So the author declares if there is credibility in the creation-temple correlation, it should be seen in the purpose and reconciliation of creation being shattered in the temple and fulfilled in the new temple, that is Christ and his bride. If there is a connection in historical context between Israel and other A&E nations, we should not be surprised to see these nations depicting their creation myths in terms of worshiping their deities and explanations that depict temple imagery. In other words, if the biblical story is true as the historical narrative taken at face value that we see it, then for other A&E texts to misinterpret that and to give explanations that are similar to that but yet aberrant would actually be expected, and we should not be surprised. However, that does not mean that we reinterpret our understanding of the Bible based on their views. Whatever temple creation connections are in the text do not deny but rather enhance the strength of Genesis as a literal historical account of the creation of a very good material universe. So to reject Genesis 1 as the description of the creation of the material world and embrace Walton's view of a functional ordering of a pre-existing creation is an eisegetical imposition upon Scripture and should be rejected by the church. By the way, that's a big word that just simply means we're reading our ideas into Scripture rather than drawing meaning and ideas out of Scripture. Such an action ultimately determines the meaning in the biblical text by relying on a particular interpretation of non-biblical pagan mythical sources that are not even the same genre as the historical narrative of Genesis. Few things in a conclusion, and not that much needs to be added. I think it's pretty clear. And by the way, I, I, again, I just have to say, I skipped so much. I mean, there is just... So, so, so much more, uh, even in this chapter alone, that I was not able to cover. And what a concise argument the author makes. I mean, I'm, I'm not really even doing it justice here. You need to get the book. $5.99 on Kindle. You need to go get the book. Um, man, it, it's a great read, and you're really going to start to see some of the inconsistencies uh, in these other views. A few things in conclusion here. Um, Walton's basis for interpreting the text of Genesis comes from ancient people who were polytheistic, believed in the ultimate source of the power of magic, and wrote much of their history in the form of mythic narrative. 
Now, while these A&E views are glaringly dissimilar to Scripture, the similarities between Genesis and A&E creation and flood myths do point to a common shared history among humanity and to a picture of the ancient world that surrounded the people of Israel. The application of Walton's use of the A&E text has resulted in extensive redefinition of the commonly understood biblical words, a rejection of any material significance in the history of the early chapters of Genesis, and a serious distortion of key Christian doctrines. Um, The history of Genesis is necessary for biblical coherency. All right. Every major doctrine in the Bible has its historical foundation for coherency in Genesis. The degree to which Walton has altered this uh, foundational understanding has resulted in seriously distorted views of sin, salvation, and consummation. If the church is to maintain biblical orthodoxy, the ideas in Walton's Lost World trilogy must be rejected. These views are so detrimental. You know, we're in a day when young people and and older people and middle-aged people, everybody, we just want the truth. Everybody just wants the truth. We want something real. We're tired of fake news. Everybody wants what's real. It's time we return to the clear teaching of Genesis. The Bible is real. I mean, we, we have done so many scriptural... I mean, we have just turned the Bible into a pile of gobbledygook, man. I mean, that is what this has happened with all these outside ideas. And anytime anybody wants to put a new idea in on the Bible, all they have to do is reference these texts, which give credence to the fact that there is an alternate meaning that can be accepted. And we can just have our way with the text. This is not the way that we handle the Word of God. And I trust you can see that here. Well, a matter or two of housekeeping and what are going to go for the week. Um, I would really like to uh, encourage you to rate and review the show and, of course, subscribe to it if this is your first time listening and you haven't yet. Um, we, I, I'd like to get in front of more people uh, in iTunes for 2018 uh, in the podcast directory. And if you don't know how to do that, send me an email. I can point you how to do this. But um, I would just really encourage you to leave a short review and to um, to rate the podcast. Um, I, I, of course, I'd love a five-star review. Uh, but I, more so, I just want you to be honest uh, so that I know how to improve or so that I know what I'm doing right. Um you know, I just want to be a resource for you. If you can't listen to every second of every episode, then I understand that. That's fine. You know, hopefully this isn't too boring for you. Of course, we're not always going to be in the middle of a book series. We also do one-off lessons as well. So um, if you enjoy this podcast, please, please rate it, review it. That helps it get seen, believe it or not, by more people. Um, That is worked into iTunes algorithm. They will put it in front of more people if they can see that it has good ratings and good uh, reviews, especially when people are on there searching for biblical creation or creation science. That makes a big difference. Um, In addition, and I don't want to... um, um, you know, do this in a way that is undue. In other words, I want you to go ahead and be as fair with these as possible. But if you do leave a five-star review, I will read that out and give you some credit with your username there and read that out on the podcast. And thank you publicly for that. Uh, If that's something you're interested in, um, that would be a way that you can give me your honest feedback and I can give you some credit for that five-star review. If you take the time to actually write out even a short review, just let us know what we're doing right and uh, let us know what we're doing wrong and just help us out a little bit we want to help you uh, we do this ministry completely for free um we do have a patreon page uh that i don't really advertise but it's out there if anybody's interested in giving a little bit uh each month or each week to help with the podcast you're more than welcome to do that um I'm going to do this podcast anyway, just frankly. Um, so it would be, uh, you know, if the Lord lays it on your heart to help us out with that, then that's great. Uh, otherwise, uh, the biggest way uh, right now that you could probably help our podcast is by just to rate uh, and review and, of course, subscribe uh, so that you don't miss any episodes when they come out. Uh, we post new lessons here uh, each Thursday morning at 7.30 a.m. Um, on the dot usually. So uh, every now and then we might have uh you know, a little before, a little after, but for the most part, we hit that on the mark every week. And so we are just looking forward to the rest of this year. It's going to be a great year. Um, 
and we're excited about what uh, the Lord is going to do. I got a couple other book series planned, got some individual lessons planned. Um, I'm probably going to do an episode. I haven't decided if I'm going to wait until after this series or kind of come in the middle because this is a very long series. Um, so I might come in either next week or the week after and just kind of give us a break from this series and maybe talk a little bit more um, about me. Um, about future plans for this podcast, about some just um, maybe some questions and answers, maybe just some random things um, that might uh, encourage you to um, to sign on board, to subscribe, and to stick around for other teachings, and then get back into our teaching on the biblical origin of humanity. And I might try to do that in a way that there is a natural break between the kind of textual um, uh, arguments in the book and the scientific ones. I might I might give a natural break in there um, and give us a break from this series. All right, so thank you so much for listening this week um, to the Creation Academy. We appreciate having you, and we appreciate what God allows us to do here. Let's say a word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for uh, allowing us to study your word, to study your world. God, we thank you for making Scripture clear. We thank you that... Um, we're able to look at critical views like this and we're able to approach them with a level of skepticism and that we're able to understand your word in its clarity from the very beginning. Uh, Father, thank you for the authors who wrote this book, for the author who wrote this chapter even. Uh, thank you for those who have such an understanding that they can help us to see uh, where others have gone wrong so that we can help others to see uh, when people are playing uh, fast and loose with the text. Lord, we, we love you for that and we thank you for that. Most of all, we thank you for being the Savior of our souls. Where would we be, God, without you? We'd be nowhere. We'd be nowhere. Sin has overtaken us. It's overtaken our society. It's overtaken our lives. Lord, your word teaches that we're dead in trespasses and sin. And thankfully, Lord, you have made us alive. And, and we thank you for that um, every day, Lord, more than you could know. Well, uh, of course, you know everything. But, uh, Father, we just love you, and we just thank you uh, for allowing us to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, that's it for this week on the Creation Academy. I hope you'll make plans to join us next week. And we are probably going to do at least one more episode before we take a break, um, if we decide to do that. And that will kind of get us out of the land of textual ideas and understandings and start to talk about some of the scientific proofs for a literal atom and a literal leaf. All right. Hope y'all have a great week. Thanks for joining us on the Creation Academy. You take care. Bye-bye.